You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 32 of So You Want to Be a Writer. This is Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Alison? I'm very well, thank you, Val. I tried to, you know, sort the safety switch out, and it's, it wasn't pretty. Thank you for that image. Yeah, I think we should all think about that for a minute. And you, Valerie, what have you been doing this morning? I bet you haven't been doing that. Well, I'm not at home. I'm actually in a um, uh, some accommodation in Richmond in Victoria because I'm about to speak at a conference here in the city. And uh, I got the accommodation through kind of like an Airbnb service, but it's it's called Luxico, L-U-X-I-C-O.com.au, and they're kind of like Airbnb but for boutique accommodation. Um, so it's kind of this cute little place. The deal breaker was whether it had Wi-Fi or not so that we could record our podcasts and talk to each other. Um, and it does. Uh, but I think that's the perfect segue into a great link that I saw this week about Airbnb. And it's about how you can sleep in the homes of these eight literary legends. So basically, you can go onto Airbnb and you can find the home that Charles Dickens used to, you know, it was his former workspace, um, you know, and, and you can go to Pacific Grove in California uh, where there was a cute little cottage that used to belong to John Steinbeck, who, of course, wrote The Grapes of Wrath and Of Mice and Men. And there's a whole heap of other, you know, famous authors that you can have a look at James Joyce, um, James Joyce's place in Ireland, Adolf um, Huxley in San Cristobal in New Mexico. And all you need to do is go on to Airbnb and look them up. And we'll put the link in the show notes on how to fi- find these exact literary homes. And, um, you know, then you can hire the place and channel your own inner author. Mm, do you think that would work? I think I would need to go and stay in Alexander Dumas's Parisian joint because it- that to me looks Amazing. I know it looks great. Amazing. I would be totally inspired there. Yeah. I might tell my husband so yeah. I can organise. <laughs> Absolutely. It's all in the name of, you oh, know. The Steinbeck Cottage is also It's gorgeous. very cute. Very, very cute. So, um, yeah, get on to Airbnb and who knows, creative inspiration may strike thanks to Airbnb. Yeah, who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? Um, but I came across another interesting link uh, about the Times newsroom mm. and um, apparently that it's set to ring with the sounds of typewriters once more and that intrigued me because as you know I'm really into typewriters but um, they're not actually reintroducing the uh, humble oh. old typewriter they're actually getting a tall speaker on a stand and, and it's being erected in the newsroom to pump out typewriter sounds to okay. increase energy levels and help reporters to hit deadlines. So the wow. audio begins, it says, with the gentle patter of a single typewriter and slowly builds to a crescendo 
with the keys of ranks of machines hammering down as the paper's print edition is due to go to press. <laughs> so this is like... That sounds really stressful, though. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling stressed just thinking about that. Well, you know, it's innovative. I guess it's their version of, you know, the Rocky anthem as he's about to, you know, <laughs> prepare for the fight. That's, they could you know. just get you in to type on a keyboard, Val. That would be loud enough. It like, is true. Of, I know something very loud. Like, I know people who type on a keyboard so loudly it might as well be a typewriter you are one <laughs> alexandra carlton is another type very loud and very fast and actually i'm not so kind of not really very backward in that area myself <laughs> yes i have had people strangers comment to me about the uh volume of my typing but do you um, know what i reckon it is i've got a theory about it yes i reckon if you learnt to type on a manual typewriter then you bash your keys that's my theory Oh. What do you reckon? Because you had to, I mean, do you remember that? Like you, you had to do so many exercises yes. and you had to get that pinky, you know, really tough. And yes. I, I pretty much reckon I could do handstands on my pinky yes. after that. Um, so I reckon that that's what it is. If you learned to type on a manual typewriter or an electric typewriter, then you, there's no tippy-tippy. There's let's go in there and go hard. Right, so that's a very practical theory. I have a little bit more of a romantic one that I oh. like to subscribe to with, that, that, that I tell typical, myself. Yeah, yeah, what's your theory? Uh, my, you know, and it's probably self-delusional, but um, I, kid, so. <laughs> I kid myself into thinking that um, because I play the piano and my favourite era is the Baroque era, which is a lot of Bach and a lot of – and Baroque is very, very precise and it's a lot of, you know, you really need control of your fingers and there's a lot of, um, you know, very precise stuff going on and you need to really be firm in your approach. That's my theory on why I... I did not know that you did that. I didn't know that you could play Baroque music on the piano. Yes. See, I learn something new about you every day. There you go, yes. But it's quite an interesting thing too because I, um, I came across an article just with regards to my theory there regarding the manual typewriter. Um, I came across a, a really cool link. Uh, during the week called What It Feels Like to Be the Last Generation to Remember Life Before the Internet. Oh, yes. And, you know, as young as we are, <laughs> that, um, that's actually us. Yes. <laughs> um, so there are, you know, like I was talking to, to my kids the other day about various things, including Elle McPherson, who they'd never heard of. Oh, my God. Go, I, look, honestly, if you're under the age of 18, you've never heard of her. I um, was talking to them about, you know, what, what it was like when I first started work and they were seriously looking at me like I was, there was clearly something mm. not quite right about me on that particular day because I was explaining to them that, you know, you actually had to make phone calls, you had to, you had to actually go out and find people, you had to look up the phone book, <laughs> the number, you had to, like so many things that we take for granted now that we have an internet yeah Google. Um, that we just didn't have. And this particular, um, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, uh, look, I'm not a Luddite. Like I've got some issues in certain areas, but <laughs> I'm not an actual, not an actual Luddite. Yeah. Um, but even so, like some days I do look back and go, well, you know, some of it wasn't so bad. Like it wasn't, we had to talk to a lot more people back in the day than we do now. Yes. There was a lot more sort of actual discussion going on. Yes. You couldn't actually just decide not to speak to someone because you didn't like their text. You know, there was none of that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and from a working perspective, you really had to work hard for, you know, it, honestly, stories that I can now do in an hour used yep. to take me a day. Yeah. 
Um, but anyway, this is a very, I mean, do you remember life before the internet? Now? Yeah, I think that the main thing I remember was that you got woken up a lot more because <laughs> these days you can turn your phone off or, you know, oh, you, you, right. you, your email comes, but it doesn't necessarily make a noise if you turn the volume of your computer off. Yeah. Whereas before, I, you know, your phone would ring, you know, while in the middle of the night or we had a fax machine. Your fax machine would go off in the middle of the night because people were faxing, you know, at all hours. And we also, believe it or not, we had a telex machine in the days of telex machines. And that's a, oh, that makes a racket. It's a clatter, 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 clatter. And um, if that went off in the middle of the night, you know, oh, you, or hell would break loose. So it, uh, I used to get woken up a lot more. I do remember that, life before well, the internet. The interesting thing about this particular article too is that they, they, they just talk about a book called The End of Absence, mm. Reclaiming What We've Lost in a World of Constant Connection. And basically the, the, um, the premise is, of course, that we wake up in the morning now and our fir the first thing we do is check emails, check Facebook, check social media, do all that sort of stuff. Mm. We didn't do that before the internet. Do you remember your mornings when you woke up and thought, what am I going to do today? Like it was, it was quite a different um, approach to living and you could be absent. You could actually disappear for a few days. It would, would, you know, not be too difficult. Whereas now it just seems to be impossible and somebody seems to want you all the time. It's so true. I tried to record a video um, on the weekend on um, th my top three ways to unplug from work on the weekend. And I basically said, you know, um, today I thought I was going to talk about my top three ways to unplug from work on the weekend. But then I realized I didn't have any. So I'm going to talk I was about to ask you that. <laughs> Exactly, <laughs> what are your top three ways? Is this part of your mid temper 30 days? Yes. <laughs> Yes, and how's that going for you and why are you doing that? Well, so for people who don't know, VidTember was actually a challenge that um, put forward by Chris Ducker and um, for those of you who are pro blogger, you may remember <clears throat> Chris was one of the speakers and the challenge is to do 30 online videos in 30 days. Now, you don't have to do 30, but I'm attempting to do 30 and I think that one of the, well, two reasons why I decided to do it. Um, number one was I've never actually done one of these things. I've never done photo a day. I've never done, you know, any of the, okay. you know, seven vignettes. I've never done any of these things. So I thought, you know, there's the first time for everything. Let's give it a go. The second reason is that I'm, I'm going through this phase of pushing myself outside my comfort zone and doing online video is totally outside of my comfort zone because, oh, for a whole range of reasons, I'm not very comfortable doing it. I find it, you know, really hard. I'm really self-conscious. So, um, you know, which is probably why I love podcasting so much. So yeah, those two reasons. I wanted to push myself out of my comfort zone. Uh, and also I just wanted to see what it was like to attempt to do something for 30 days. So there you go. Fair enough. Yes, but um, now I'm into the swing of it. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I'm actually thinking, um, Alison, of I'm doing just, yeah. 30 days at some point of, you know, um, magazine writing tips and then 30 days of creative writing tips or, you know. So these are all going to be videos. Possibly, if I um, can survive Vidtember, I may well could keep the momentum going. Goodness me. So, this is all on your own personal YouTube channel, is it? It is. It is. So, right. Well, know. I look forward to 30 days of magazine tips. Yeah. We'll see how be, we go. I don't have to be in it, do I? Oh, well, you know, I might con you into it because I know I will be seeing you shortly. So, I don't do videos. <laughs> I have to do – I've got a video interview lined up um, in October – 
for um, the launch of Mapmakers and it's uh, it's the one thing on my entire calendar, including presenting to people, all that sort of thing. It's the one thing I just really don't want to do. Yes, I hear you <laughs> and um, that's why I decided to do this to try and help me get over that fear. <laughs> okay, so I'll look forward to watching them all. Anyway, what else is happening in the world of writing, blogging and publishing this week? Um, okay, well, there was a great article written by Dion Liu who is a social media um uh, so, so I interviewed her for a story that I did a couple of years ago and uh, she was just so smart and so kind of, you know, on the ball that um, we sort of became, I started following her on Twitter and we, you know, we, and I, I really enjoy her work and she's written a, a piece for Smart Company website mm. about the business of digital life and death mm. and it's a really interesting article. It's sort of like answers, you know, can you bequeath your iTunes collection in your will Mm. Um, does anyone know that you have money in a PayPal account and do they know what, how to get it out if, if, you know, if something happens to you, yeah. you know, what happens if somebody wants to take down your Facebook page, you know, after you die, all of that sort of stuff, all those sorts of things, that digital footprint that we're all leaving online now and, you know, in various places, what happens to it? you know, in the in the case of your of your death. And mm. it includes things like bitcoins. You know, people are yeah. massing all these bitcoins and it's like, well, what happens to them? Do they just sit out there in the ether forevermore or what happens to them? Um, and basically what the article says is that there's no international standard for estate planning mm. and it becomes very, very difficult because you can't um, – you can't put your password in a will because under probate it becomes public. So oh. you can't leave all your passwords to somebody in a will right. because they become public and suddenly everybody, you know, everyone knows the passwords to all your accounts and everything that, you, that you've got going on. So it, it's, a, it's a quite iffy area and different platforms have different um, ways of going about things. Um, Facebook, for example, will protect the privacy of someone who dies by securing the account and a family member can request that it be removed or what they call memorialized, mm. but you can't log into it. And like if someone, if, if I leave you my password, mm. you can't log in and delete the account. Right. that's a violation of terms. Wow, complicated. It is really complicated and it's really worth having a quick look at this, um, at, at this particular um, article and having a little bit of a think about what you might do in the case, you know, like what are you going to do with all those bits and pieces? Yeah, definitely. Wow, I've never, I must so admit I that I have worth- never thought about it. No, neither had I. And then I read that and thought, mm, maybe we should all start. But I think it's one of those things that we've moved into a new era and now we maybe have to adjust our thinking across all levels with regards mm. to that new era. And I think that's the point she's making. Well, speaking of new eras, I understand that the moleskin has entered a new era. Is that yes, right? the beloved notebook of Ernest Hemingway and other you know, noted literary types. I personally have several of them. Mm-hmm. I just like to have them. Yeah. I actually use them. I, know. I just like to have them. I think they're quite beautiful. Um, But anyway, they have unveiled a new notebook collection that works with live live scribe pens. Mm. So the joy of that is that you can scrawl away in your moleskine, doing your business, writing your literary masterpiece, (laughs) and the whole lot will also then go onto your... um, onto your iPad or other device. And I love it. will not then have to <laughs> retype the whole thing. <laughs> I love it. Or draw, Which especially if you're one of, the, one of those people who draw. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it stores the record in the live scribe and then you download it or upload it and off you go. You're in wow. business. So if you are a moleskin lover, then that's for you. 
Yeah, I love it. I wonder if it's going to work with my live scribe pen because oh, they, you know. Clearly you'll need to get one. Yeah, absolutely. I know how much you love that. Yes. <laughs> oh, good. Well, we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, Definitely. It's, uh, it's, yeah, very clever. Um, so I thought we would move on to, we usually talk about a book, but I wanted to talk about a cheat sheet that I came across. Thank you to Liz for highlighting it. It's actually by the Veggie Mama and she did a session at um, a recent conference on blogging in the law. But, uh, of course, if you didn't go to that conference, she's got a very handy cheat sheet and we'll put the link in the show notes. And the cheat sheet is um, really handy for bloggers because it talks about where you can run into trouble online. And that might be, you know, speaking ill of others or posting a misleading review. You might think it's just your opinion, but if it's misleading, you could get in trouble. And, of course, using images or content that don't belong to you, sometimes running a competition or giveaway if you don't do it the right way is, um, you know, could get you into trouble. Or if you don't disclose your commercial arrangements, which I know there are some bloggers who don't Mm. do that. So it's pretty handy because it goes through, you know, a number of um, different things, including um, what might be the issues be if you discuss court proceedings and of course um, you know um, copyright issues and privacy laws and um, what your what you need to be aware of um, when it comes to trademarks and just declaring sponsored content so uh, we we don't have time to go into all of the ins and outs because that would take an entire podcast but we'll put the link in the show notes so blogging in the law by the veggie mama Stacey Roberts. That's right. Yeah. Um, And so also in the world of blogs, what else is happening, Al? Well, again, uh, I guess, you know, the great thing about ProBlogger, the ProBlogger conference is that it's the conference that keeps on giving because, um, Mm -hmm. you know, people not only tweet the whole thing, discuss the whole thing online while it's on, but then you often get some fantastic posts up afterwards from panellists and from different people sharing the information that they've done. Now, Lainey Galligan was at the conference and she was on a panel um, discussing the relationship with bloggers, brands and readers. And mm. um, from what I can gather, it was a great, um, a great panel. But she's written a piece uh, afterwards on the Agents of Influence um, blog mm. and it's called um, The Blogger. Oh, the elephant, the blogger, the brand, and the reader. Hmm. And what she's talking about here is the relationship with the, the, fa- the fact that if bloggers want to do business with businesses, they have to act like businesses. Oh, yeah. The professionalism aspect of it is very important. And she talks about the fact that um, there was a commenter on, a, on an article that appeared on Mumbrella that said that the majority of comments on blogs are from other bloggers trying to lure more readers over. So the yeah. inference there with some brands is that bloggers are blogging for other bloggers and they're not actually um, reaching the readers that they that they say that they are. Mm. And the other thing that, the, that she talks about too is that sometimes um, bloggers have a an unrealistic, um, shall we say, um, idea of what they're worth. Mm. And she makes the point that brands measure your value on output, not input. Like the fact that your time, you, you put time into a post and things is important, mm. um, but it's what you deliver to the brand that makes you worth money. Yep. And I think that that's something that um, 
that you know, I mean, any, that everybody needs to think about. Like, it's it, you can't just walk out. It's a bit like the supermodels. You know, I won't mm. get out of bed for ten thousand dollars <laughs> a day. I mean, I'd like to say that too, but no one's <laughs> going to pay me that. Mm. So I think you know, it's a matter of she's she's written a quite well considered article about let's have a look at and a think about this and in relation to your own blog, like what do you what do you, how professional are you being and how are you. Um, going about your business. What do you think about that, Val? I think that's pretty spot on in terms of, yeah, it's about the output because I see a lot of bloggers, you know, become very successful financially, which is great um, for them. Um, And I see some bloggers who are really sort of despairing that they can't necessarily make a you know, financial living out of what they blog about. And you've you've got to take a good hard look at what you blog about and see whether it's, you know, commercially interesting enough for people to pay you for sponsored content or to get enough eyeballs so that you, you you know, people want to advertise. And sometimes what we love may be particularly niche or what we love may, you know, not necessarily have enough of an audience. So it's, 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 it's a balance. You need to think, yes, this is my passion. This is what I love. But the reality it's, it's, um, supply and demand is all it boils down to. No one owes you a living just because you happen to love that. It, it, because it's supply and demand, you need to see whether there is enough demand for whatever it is that, that you're passionate about and that you're doing in order to be able to you know make a lucrative income from it. So it does just boil down to what the market you know will bear. That's right. Hmm. Well, there you go. That's <laughs> that, was the that was the soapbox for the morning. Yeah, that was, so it was well. <laughs> well, let's move on. Let's, let's to please tell us who is our writer in residence for this week. Well, our writer in residence this week is the lovely Kylie Ladd from Melbourne, and Kylie has just written her fourth. Oh, just uh, published her fourth novel, Mothers and Daughters, and we had a very, very good discussion about. Um, about, you know, the difficulties in writing a book and we talked about the differences between fiction and non-fiction and it was a, yeah, it was a very interesting conversation about the realities of being a working writer, a working author mm. and um, I hope you guys all really enjoy it. Kylie Ladd is an Australian novelist who has published two non-fiction books and whose fourth novel, Mothers and Daughters, has just been released by Alan and Unwin. Kylie also works part-time as a neuropsychologist and anyone who has read her finely crafted novels will see the effects of her professional knowledge in her work. So welcome, Kylie. Thanks, Al. Lovely to be here. Well, let's start with your new novel, Mothers and Daughters, well-mined territory for psychological drama. Don't know how it goes at your house. How do you take a subject like that and make it new and fresh? Ooh, well, it's new and fresh to me, I guess, so uh, I guess that's how I do it. Um, I wanted to write the novel, which is about uh, four women, four middle-aged women who, who go away on holiday with their four teenage daughters, the girls are between 14 and 16, and what drew me to the topic was watching as so many of my friends were starting to uh, engage is a nice word. We're starting to battle, maybe, with uh, their own teenage daughters. Not all my friends and not all their daughters, but I was certainly watching with interest as lots of my friends' daughters grew up and it, life started becoming a lot rockier. And I really wanted to write about that uh, about that issue. I definitely wanted to write about that issue before my own daughter hit um, her teenage years. She's 12 and a half, so I'm very happy that the novel's come out so no one can read it and think that's Kylie's daughter who's the bitch in the piece there. Well, that's, quite, that was, that's interesting because that was a question I was going to ask you. When you're writing something like that as both a mother and a daughter, 
are you just are your family members sitting on your shoulder, so to speak, as you write? You know, just thinking. I mean, how do you, how are you honest when you've got that relation, your own relationships like that? Yeah, I don't know if it's my family members who are worried so much as my friends who are worried. <laughs> like I said, what the topic was and why I was interested in it. Um, look, I, I just tell everybody it's it's all fiction, and uh, that that's not entirely true. I'm not meaning to lie to people, but my characters are fictional in that if I ever use an incident or a characteristic it's mixed with lots of other incidents and characteristics. There's none of my characters in any of my novels are ever a direct copy of someone. That would just be cheating that wouldn't be very interesting at all but that said you can't help but absorb what's going on around you, um, particularly if you are a psychologist as well as a novelist like I am, you, you can't help but notice what's going on and that does come out in your writing. And, and that said, you know, I would say that there's aspects of myself in all four of the mothers, and some of the mothers are much more likable than other of the mothers, but I do think, you know, I recognise parts of myself in all of the mothers. So I think that's hard to, to pull out too, particularly when you're writing about a character who's the same age and gender and background as yourself. That's true. And you do say, I think, is it your Twitter bio that says, I like to watch and then write about it? <laughs> that's it makes quite me, right. makes me and very I'm... nervous with you. <laughs> I'm just warning everybody that, uh, as Nora Ephron famously said, everything is copy. Yes, it's <laughs> There's true, nothing isn't that's it? sacred. It, it can all be used. I'm one of those writers, and, and I think we're quite rare, unfortunately. I'm one of those writers that has no ideas. I, I teach creative writing for the Australian Writers' Centre, and I'm always impressed with my students who say they're bursting with ideas and they carry notebooks around, which I do, but mine's empty. Um, and they've, always, <laughs> they've got so many ideas they don't know what to work on next. I find it quite difficult to get ideas, I have to be honest. And when I find an idea, I mine it as much as I can and, and I guard my ideas. So I'm always on the lookout for things that will inspire my writing. So yes, I am a voyeur. Well, that's interesting because that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. Like you do seem to move seamlessly from one novel to the next. Like you're producing, you know, a finely crafted work every 12 to 18 months, generally speaking. So you're not an, you don't have the notebooks of ideas shoved in the bottom drawer ready to go? Like, would, do you get to the, no. end, of, do you get to no, the end of a manuscript and go, okay, what do I do now? It's funny. I try and start thinking halfway through a manuscript. I try and start assessing my options. Is there anything at all in the tank that I might possibly use for the next one? Because that's still like a year off before I'll be writing it and I need that long for something to bubble to the surface, essentially. But... Mm. Um, Usually, look, I've always, maybe I've been lucky and maybe my mind is more creative than, I, than I'm saying it is. Usually I've always found that by the last third of a manuscript, I've got, I can see on the horizon what the next manuscript is going to, or what the next novel is going to be about. So far that's always happened. Um, I'm 10,000 words into my, what I hope will be my fifth novel. Um, there's absolutely nothing on the horizon. In fact, my daughter said, what are you going to write about next? And I told her to wash her mouth out because we don't talk about what I'm going to write about next while I'm, I'm still feeling my way into a new novel. But um, I'm confident that something will show up. I'm hopeful that something will show up eventually. I'm sure it'll turn up, you know, announcing yeah. itself, dancing across the horizon, going, it's me, I'm here. It's me, I'm, I'm the one. Now, you and I have had several conversations over the years with um, sort of on my blog and various places regarding the joys of plotting. I knew this would come up with you, Alice. Of course it was going to come up with me because it's really interesting because I've just um, – a couple of the most recent interviews that I have done have been with authors who do not plot at all. And that's Le- uh, Leanne Moriarty and Michael oh. Robotham who writes those crime novels without plotting. 
sell lots and lots of novels. So uh, I know. Something so right. something's going on there. Maybe I've now, got to stop plotting. <laughs> no, because now this is the thing. Like as we as we have discussed several times, you have to do what's right for you, and different people work in different ways. But what I am interested in is maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you plan and write your novels. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, well, I get the I get the germ of an idea, which I then nurture very carefully and um, feed steroids if I can for a while. But I, I'm, I guess this is going to sound a bit hippie, and I'm not the hippie type. I like the, to think that these ideas are sorting themselves out organically while I write the previous novel. I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah, yeah um, I, I do find that once I've fixed on an idea or a theme that I want to write about, and I should say that. Usually I, I work out fairly early what my books are about and there's always a one word that, at its core what my books are about, um, be, it, be it grief, which was last summer, be it um, blood, which was uh, into my arms. And, and the, the theme word for this book, believe it or not, uh, for mothers and daughters was reconciliation. And I knew that fairly early that reconciliation was the word I was working with. I think once I have a word... I mean, that's pretty pathetic, isn't it? All I need is a word. Once I have a word, I'm happy to let that word sit there for a few months and percolate away while I'm finishing the novel before, if that makes sense. No, that's, but so you're actually an author who works from theme first, almost. I do. I wouldn't have thought that I was going to be that author because my first novel, after the fall, sort of just came to me, you know, and I just wrote it. And I actually didn't plan that one very much at all, Al, but I've planned the ones ever since. But, um, But now I think... If, if I'm going to work on something for a year and a half and I'm going to write roughly 100,000 words about it, it's got to be something that at its core I'm interested in. And, and I think having a theme, it's, it gives me a, a rudder or a keel or something. It wakes me back in the book. It reminds me, what am I trying to do here? And having one word for me works like that. So, so a very important early part of the process of writing a novel I've now realised. And, and this has happened over the course of, as I said, this is my fourth published novel I'm writing my fifth but I had two unpublished novels before those so really I'm, I'm up to about my seventh novel of practically writing and so a very early important part is, is identifying that word or theme or I guess the touchstone you know what I'm really writing about of the book but then when I finished when I finished the novel and the, the previous novel and it's been sent in and you know I'm in that horrible stage of waiting to hear what my agent and my publisher think about it you usually have a few months then and that's when I try and start the next one but usually I'll take a few weeks or a month even to sit down and start plotting out the next one. And that's not plotting. I'm, I know it's plotting in the sense of I know what's going to happen. I know the basic narrative arc. But then it's mainly not so much plotting each chapter by chapter. Then the next step for me is, is working on the characters. Yeah. And, um, yeah, sorry, go on. Well, that was a question I was going to ask you. At what point does the character come to you? Because um, I would imagine that with a th- like if you come up with a word theme does the character follow very quickly yes but look the characters and again this is you know you're completely right in saying different processes work for different people but I've found what works for me is having the theme and then having the characters so I know what I'm working with and then I know who I'm working with and um, I've also found it's important to me to sit down and get out an exercise book sorry I'm laughing laughing at you too (laughs) An exercise book, <laughs> awesome. A dinosaur. I get. I have an exercise book for each novel, and I'm almost a bit embarrassed to admit this, but and then I start looking for pictures of my characters, and I stick in pictures of my characters or things that remind me of my characters, and 
Um, and then I start writing about my characters, um, just just about their characteristics and a little bit about their background, so I can so I know who I'm working with. And, and that's the next stage of my plotting, I guess. I spend a few weeks doing that and fleshing out my characters so they're quite distinct to me in my own mind. That was really important with mothers and daughters because I'm dealing with four white middle-aged women and four uh, white teenage girls, so all from a sort of middle class. You know, uh, Australian background so you know they, they're very similar demographically so I needed them to be very distinct to me in terms of their personalities and yeah. their attributes. Yeah. And that's actually more difficult in some ways than if you took four completely different people oh, from different backgrounds. Absolutely. And, yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Because those much nuances easier. are yeah. hard, aren't they? They are hard because my last book had a family of um, asylum seekers from Iran in it and they were actually, once I'd done the research um, and I'd, I'd spent some time with asylum seekers as part of my um, psychology job but once I'd done the research I was really nervous about writing those characters but they were so easy to write because there was such a richness of culture and difference there. Um, I found it much harder to write my four Australian women and make them more distinct and interesting than I did to, to write about a different culture, which I hadn't expected, I must say. Mm, okay. Now, you mentioned your first novel, After the Fall, which I actually found you on Twitter after hearing a lot of chatter about that first novel, um, and I loved the book. Can you tell us a little bit about how that novel came to be published? You said you had two unpublished manuscripts still in the drawer. So this I is the did. third one that you wrote? Yes, this was the third one that I wrote, and, and I will say for all your listeners that those two unpublished manuscripts um, did the rounds of publishers both in Australia and overseas, because we were living in Scotland um, when I wrote both of those, I think, and then we were actually living in, in Montreal in Canada when um, I wrote After the Fall, so I wasn't just confining myself to Australian publishers, I was submitting all over Europe and North America, <laughs> and I was roundly rejected all over Europe and North America as well as Australia, so... And I will also say that After the Fall was rejected roughly 40 times in, in Australia. and um, 40 and times? Yeah, roughly. Yeah, yeah, easily. Easily 40. I, I think I stopped counting After wow. 40. It was dispiriting. What got, up, what got After the Fall up was just a, such a stroke of luck. I can't, you know, I sort of can't, still can't believe it. But the more I talk to authors, I think most authors, it's almost like women with their birth stories. I think most authors have a novel story. They have their novel got born. And, and more, more and more I realise, and, and I wouldn't want writers to think that it's all about luck, but I do think there's, there's I don't know, luck or serendipity plays a, a small role. But mm. you, you've got to be prepared, of course. But anyway, um, what happened was I applied to do something called the, what was it called? Literary Speed Dating at the Emerging Writers Festival. Oh, right. Yeah, the Emerging Writers Festival is held in Melbourne in May every year um, and it's a, quite a big festival now and it's for, obviously, as the title suggests, for emerging writers, for people who are find, wanting to be writing but finding their way into publishing, wanting to know about getting published and developing their craft and making contacts with other people in the same sort of boat. And to my knowledge, I think they've only done this literary speed dating once or twice and this was back, God, I don't even want to say how long that ago it was, I think it was about 2003 or four, something like that. And they advertised that they were going to have an event called Literary Speed Dating where, where would-be um, authors, novelists, but also non-fiction, submitted a A4 page about their book. It wasn't allowed to be any longer than A4. It could be an excerpt or it could be a synopsis. Um, and themselves, and they, they would be... Only 10 were selected. I believe there were about 700 applications. 10 were selected, so I was lucky enough to be one of them. And then we, we went speed dating. We, had, we were at the Melbourne Town Hall and we had 10 minutes each with 10 different publishers from 10 publishing houses. 
And in that 10 minutes, we had to sit down and pitch our novels as effectively and efficiently as we could. Um, and then the bell would ring and then, we'd, and then we could hand over our piece of paper with the, the one-page um, notes or synopsis <laughs> or what have you and move on to the next one. No pressure. So, Oh, it was the most... I think I came out of that about 10 kilograms lighter than I was <laughs> I remember I was wearing a denim jacket and it was I'd sweated right through it and I'm not even a sweater. <laughs> so, sorry, that's probably a bit disgusting. That, that may have been a little bit too much information. It may have been anyway, sorry about that. Continue. The pressure, as you say, was immense and you know you're meeting good people from... I met people from Texas and <clears throat> Scribe and Penguin and Picador and... You know, all these wonderful people that you you want to impress them with your novel and uh, you just have to go. And I'm not the sort of person, I'm not good at putting myself forward like that. I can do it online, but I'm not good at doing it in the flesh. But you just had to go in and do it. So it was very stressful. But long story short, um, Alan and Unwin picked up the novel out of that um, episode, essentially. Just on that, though, like the, the thing I find quite interesting about this is that that novel had been rejected 40 times. Yes, I what know. What made you think, like, why, what was your, like, why didn't you just think, oh, it's been rejected 40 times, I'll just put it in the drawer with the others and move on to something else? What was it about that well, novel that made you think, I'm going to take this particular work to the literary speed dating? No, I had. What I'd done is I'd shelved, I'd, I'd written this one and had been rejected all those times. I'd put it back in the drawer along with my other poor babies and left them to die and I'd moved on to, I've just gone, this is not going to work. And that was when I'd moved on to writing my two non-fiction. Well, I wrote one, I co-authored one non-fiction book about dementia and then co-edited another non-fiction yeah. book about um, adultery and infidelity. And yes, yeah, so that's while I was doing those things. I'd left it to die. But then when I saw the, I don't know, I saw the ad in the, um, in the newsletter from the Victorian Writers' Centre, which I'm a member and I, and I strongly recommend to all my students that they become members of, well, the Victorian Writers' Centre because I teach in Melbourne, but each state has its own Writers' yep. Centre, obviously, and they're fabulous resources. Uh, I saw it in the newsletter and I thought, what have I got to lose? You know, I'll give it a shot. So I emailed in my application. So it was funny, though, that I did, I sent in After the Fall and at one of my non-fiction projects because, um, you know, I was certainly working on those and non-fiction was invited just as much as fiction was. But I think I still felt that After the Fall was... I actually did feel that it was worth publishing. I thought someone one day has got to take this novel and thank God they did. Thank God they did because I really <laughs> loved it. I thought it was excellent. <laughs> thank All you. All right. So let's have a little talk about this business of um, just, you know, on that, like, I guess, putting yourself out there line of thought. Yes. This thought about the business of author platforms. Now, mm -hmm. I know that you don't blog and you have discussed at length why you don't blog, which is mostly that it's takes a massive time, amount of time and, and all your creativity. But do you consciously work to build your profile in other ways? Oh, I used to. Uh, to be honest, I'm not as good as good as doing not as good at doing that at the moment as I would like to be, which is just just purely a time thing. My yep. um, my neuropsych work has um, expanded. Um, it's I'm getting a lot more private work than I used to, and to be perfectly frank with you, the private work pays well and it enables me to write. So I I struggle to turn down well paying work that that gives me free days to write. But I do the result of that is I have far less time on Twitter and social media than I used to have. I joined Twitter in a year that my family, we, we had a sea change year and spent the year in Broome. We sort of had a year off, which was yep. just fantastic. Uh, and I joined Twitter then, which meant I was on it, you know, all the time. Yes. And it was fantastic. Yes, which was fantastic and totally unsustainable when I came back to the real world where or I didn't just spend my days 
swanning around Cable Beach and, you know, reading novels. <laughs> what a shame. <laughs> Thought they were good days. Yes. But yes, I came back to Melbourne and had to go back to work and, you know, um, so I find it much harder. I do make an effort to um, be on Twitter as regularly as I can. Unfortunately, it feels more, more of an effort now because I'm squeezing more things in. But I do believe in the platform, I guess, in terms of, keeping your name out there but I do also enjoy it when I do get there it's not that I'm just doing it to market stuff and and I don't think that works personally anyway I do enjoy being on Twitter when I can it's just I don't know finding I think the other thing too is my children have got older Um, my daughter in particular does four different sports and seems to require driving to all four corners of Melbourne every five minutes and you know that sort of thing it just makes it more difficult but when I do get a minute I do enjoy being on there and Twitter is your um your sort of is social media platform of choice, is that right? Pretty much, yes. Look, I've yep. got a Facebook page, but I keep getting emails from Facebook saying, we haven't heard from you in a while. You know? And I think, <laughs> oh, yeah, damn, Facebook, I must post. I have a personal page where I post everything about, you know, embarrassing about my children and my husband yeah, and those sorts of that. things. But my author page I don't use as well as I should. I should, again, it's a time thing. Yeah, Twitter, I, w- I would say, is, is my, um, my, my platform of choice. The other thing I love about Twitter is it's short. I love the 140 character limit. Yeah, me too. As you said, blogs scare me because um, they require a lot of time to write and to craft, and I have no ideas anyway, as I've said, so, so that's always a problem. But <laughs> I like the immediacy of Twitter. I like that I can be short and sharp and, and still be getting something out there or saying something or joining in a discussion or having an opinion. What about, you know, in real life platform building stuff? Are you doing speaking gigs or are you, are you sort of like doing library talks? I mean, do you, because I mean, the, the, everyone talks about the platform and I think the platform has to take in not just online activities, but, you know, other things as well. Because some people say, oh, I don't have a platform, but they're doing constant library talks and things like that. And I think that, you know, that stuff is also important. Do you do yeah. any, any of that sort of thing? I how do, do, you, how do you feel about the public speaking? <laughs> I actually don't mind public speaking. Um, I'm always nervous beforehand, but, um, you know, I love the roar of an audience once (laughs) once I get going. (laughs) Often there's not so much a roar as a polite shuffling or crossing of legs. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) look, I'll do any public speaking or interviews. I I really enjoy radio, and I've done quite a bit of radio with Radio National, not about my books, but just as a a psychologist, really, as a talking head, so to speak. Um, And I enjoy that. I'll do anything that's offered to me, um, pretty much. Right. Uh, I'm not good, again, about going out and chasing, chasing it down it. unless I've got a book in the offing. Like, I've got a lot of things coming up at the moment because, yeah. because I've got a book coming out. Mm. But yeah. um, I'm not so good at chasing up. I probably should be better. Um, I, did, I don't know if this counts, but it's the school fate coming up and I'm being auctioned to go and talk to a book group. So, oh, you're being um, auctioned? Um, That's yeah, hilarious. I'm interested to see if anyone actually bids for me. But anyway, I'd we'll see. You. I'd bid. That'd be awesome. All right. Look, we've, we've, like one thing that we've touched on here a lot is time. Let's talk mm. about time because one question I'm asked a lot as a working mother and writer is how do you fit the writing in? And I'm assuming that you also get asked this a lot. So like, how, how do you do it? What is your writing routine? Where do you do the writing and how? Okay. Um, I do the writing at home in my study, which has a door that closes from the rest of the house, which is very important. That said, I share the study. It's got two desks in it, so I share the study with my daughter, so I never plan to do any writing when she's around because it's very hard to when you're just hearing Taylor Swift blaring out or what, or Minecraft battles being fought behind you, what have you. So I do the writing. I, I aim to spend, and it doesn't sound like much, but it's sort of, I think it, it, I really think it's important to set realistic goals um, 
because then you can meet them and feel okay about yourself. So my aim is to spend two days every week writing. When I say two days, that's between, say, 9 o'clock and 3.30 when the kids are at school and the house is quiet. And to be even more brutally honest, I never even aim or plan to start writing much before 11 because I know that I'm going to want to check email and check Twitter and that there's the washing that has to be put out and guinea pigs that have to be fed and those sorts of things that have to be done. So I give myself two hours in the morning to do admin and to be on social media and then I try to write like the clappers between 11 and 3.30, so four and a bit hours. All right, so you will write for four and a half hours. Yeah, pretty much, but I only do that twice a week. Um, I aim for a 1,000 words um, in a writing session. If I don't make the 1,000 words, I get back on the computer when the kids are in bed and I stay there until I do. I'm very, very disciplined about that. I'm a very disciplined person, full stop. I make timetables and I stick to them. It's the only way I find I achieve anything. So I make myself, you know, I can't go to bed until the 1,000 words is written, essentially. And I find that even... Two days a week, writing for four, four and a half hours, producing, say, 2,000 words a week, even taking out the ridiculous amounts of school holidays that my children seem to have, which is about 13 weeks a year. If you write those 2,000 words every week, that is still a novel-length manuscript by the end of the year. So, you know, wow. it's quite... Yeah, I, I have students say to me, I don't get much time. I say, all you have to do is 2,000 words a week, and that will have you a novel-length manuscript by the end of the year. But you've got to commit to doing those 2,000 words a week. Yeah, and getting it yeah. done. And so once you've actually written those 2,000 words a week, are you doing – because with your, the amount of plotting and planning that you do, you don't then have to do an awful lot of redrafting, do you? No, and look, I should say that – no, I don't. Um, and that's me. And, I, you know, I'm, when I teach, I say, you know, be prepared to redraft eight, nine times, thinking to myself – I've never done it more than once, but yeah. everybody works differently. Yeah. Um, because I, I write slowly. I get those 1,000 words written, but I know some people can dash off 1,000 words in an hour or so. It will take me the whole four hours or sometimes more to get those 1,000 words. I write slowly so I can um, be sort of editing as I go. I will do a brief edit of whatever work I've done the night, you know, the next day. I'll, I'll quickly go over that again just to make sure there's nothing that's jarring there that I've missed the day before. And I do spend every so often, I won't, that thousand words won't just be for writing. Uh, if I've got a new section coming up or an important scene coming up, I will set aside the time to think it through very carefully and plot it out in my own head and make often copious notes that often end up being longer than the scene I actually write about what I want to achieve in that scene and what are the key things I need to do in that scene and, and, you know, how I'm going to move from A to B, if that makes sense. Okay. So has there been anything about, you know, being a published author that has really surprised you? Like is it a glamorous life of book tours and champagne? I'm thinking (laughs) no, judging by our conversation. (laughs) Oh, God, I'm going to be the person who came on your podcast who was just down about everything. No, I but, uh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> Good. Um, no, it's not a glamorous life. It's not glamorous at all. There are glamorous moments, um, and, you know, they're lovely, those moments, but they're not the sum total, and they're not, they're not all that common either. A lot of it is sitting in my pyjamas or my tracksuit pants and boots with the holes in them and wanting to beat my head against the desk. Um, <laughs> I, I now that's find, glamorous. Yeah, that's glamorous. I, I have to admit, I find writing very, very difficult. Um, sometimes for a sentence or two, the words will flow, but mostly I feel like I'm, you know, drawing them out of me like tapeworm or something. God, that's not glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've been really you've got, you've honestly, you've come up with some of the best imagery that we've had ever. <laughs> no. I find writing to be hard work and I often wished I didn't feel obliged or compelled to write 
that said, the relief and the joy I feel when I have written and I know, I feel in myself that what I've written, you know, is okay, is, is, can be made to work, is, is going to all be good, um, is, is a wonderful feeling. Um, and I think I also write too because the main challenge, I don't find it a challenge to write, gosh, this is going to sound up myself, I don't find it a challenge to write well in that I think I can string words together. Yeah. And I can express myself. And, you know, people always say, that, you know, oh, I like your Facebook post. My, my friends aren't writers. My, my writer friends don't notice it at all. But people say, how do you write like that? And I go, I don't know. That's just how I write or emails. I find that's, you know, it's easy to draft, a, you know, something for the swimming club or for the school newsletter. Um, so the actual writing is okay. What I do find difficult is the plotting and, and making everything hang together. And But I actually also find conversely, I think that the problem-solving aspect of writing fiction is probably why I kept coming back to it um, okay. because it's, it's so tough but it's so rewarding when you solve a problem about how you're going to make get a character from A to B or make this scene happen or what have you. Okay, um, but but having said all of that and even brought up the tapeworm, which I'm gonna live, <laughs> is going to live with me for some time. Sorry. <laughs> um, you have a glamorous book tour coming up. I do have a glamorous book tour coming up, actually, which I'm very excited about. Look, Alan and Unwin are trying something. I've never been sent on a book tour before, and my lovely publishers at Alan and Unwin are actually trying something new, and they're sending me on a tour with two other um, authors of um, commercial fiction, for want of a better term. We all apparently write the same genre, and that's Fiona Higgins and Maggie Joel, and, and we're being sent off for 10 days in uh, November to, um, I don't know, all up and down the east coast of Australia, essentially. Lots of driving, a little bit of flying, hopefully some nice hotel rooms. It's like um, a massive road trip, a girly road trip. It is a massive road trip. I have never met either of these women before. If they're listening, I'm sure we're going to have a ball. (laughs) I I, really um, hope we all get on well because we're going to be in that car together for five, six hours most days. See, (laughs) now I'm really sad that you don't blog because this would be awesome. Well, you know what? I reckon I can turn it into a novel, Al. <laughs> there you go. I've just thought of that right then. You There's better warn my new novel. You may, That's you, may, six. you may like to warn your fellow passengers that they are going to be turned into a novel. <laughs> I really hope they're not listening. No. And also, and the other thing we have to talk about is that you've also got a champagne moment. So let's talk about your champagne moment. You have just sold Mothers and Daughters... Where? Yes, into the UK, which I'm very excited about. Thank you for bringing that up because that actually happened yesterday and you're only the first person outside my immediate family I've told. See, so there you go. I'm, I'm absolutely delighted. Now, and you asked me something that, that surprised me. Well, I think I thought when I started writing fiction it was going to be more glamorous and that overseas book deals were just going to fall into my lap and that sales would magically appear and reviews would all be glowing. Now, and I'm not saying it's all been horrible and tapeworms and just a trudge through, through mud. It hasn't at all. It's been great and I think, I've, you know, I've been very grateful for the, the career I've had so far. But there are, there are lots of down moments so that when a moment like this happens, it is very wonderful and exciting and I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled that um, um, my agent has managed to interest, um, well, to, to get Little Brown, who are um, a big publisher in the UK and they actually publish J.K. Rowling, which can only be a good thing. Can only um, be a good thing. Can only be a good thing, yes. Uh, they're very keen on the book and bringing it out, actually, um, and this might interest you, they're bringing it out as an e-book quite shortly and then bringing it out in print next year because that Fantastic. takes longer to happen. But they're, they're so keen on the book, they want to bring it out as an e-book straight away, which is interesting. I've never seen that done before, so we'll see if that works. But they actually published the little coffee shop of Kabul and that's how they did it with that too. And, you know, I, I would not be upset 
I must say, were um, 1% of the little coffee shop of Gabor's sales. So <laughs> if that model works for that book, well, it's good enough for me. That'll be frankly. fingers crossed so. and more champagne all round if that happens. More champagne all round. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah so, look, but it is, it is hard to, um, I'll just, sorry, I'll let you get a word in in a second, but, you know, it is hard to sell overseas and that's something that surprised me, I think. As I said, I think I thought that book deals would then just rain into your lap once you sold a novel in Australia, which was very naive. But then my first novel did sell into America quite easily and quickly. Um, and so I thought, think I thought that would always happen. But I realise now with um, a few more years and novels under my belt that, that it's, it's difficult. And look, publishing is only getting more difficult, I think, as an area. Um, it's contracting as an... It's not contracting in terms of what it wants to do and, and what it believes in, but it's a harder area to get a foothold in uh, these days. All right. Um, then what would be your three top tips for people who want to get a foothold, who want to be authors? Oh, okay. Well, Come my on. number one top tip, and I always have, stu- I can always see a student roll their eyes when I say this because they just think, yeah, 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 get to the interesting bits. Uh, read. Read is my number one top tip for getting yep. published. Yeah, you know, there's absolutely no substitute for it. Everyone I know who is a born writer wants to read anyway. So in some ways, I guess I should be converting to, uh, sorry, preaching to the converted. But um, reading is so important. It's important to, to, to not, not for entertainment purpose, but it's important to know. I mean, that's always great. It's important to know what you're trying to do. It's important to read, to work out what works and what doesn't. But I also truly believe that you absorb so much by osmosis by reading good fiction. Um, I mean, I encourage my students to think forensically as they read, why is this scene working for me What or, or not working, as the case may be? You know, what's the author done with their sentence structure or their characterisation? I mean, I think all that is important. But I do also believe in the osmosis thing, in if you just read enough good fiction that you will you will know somehow how to write a novel or how to structure a novel. You'll know about how plot devices work and um, the sort of effects you might be going for. So I think reading is really important. Okay. Okay, so that's tip number one. You need three tips. I need three. <laughs> Where are you going to go from here? Okay. Um, Commit, commit to the work. You know, I said that thing about the 2,000 words a week, which, you know, there'll be people who are laughing at 2,000 words a week. I believe Alexander McCall Smith knocks off 5,000 words before breakfast, you know. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, you've got to commit to actually, it's, it's such an obvious thing to say, but writers write. They don't mm. talk about writing. They don't waltz around parties saying, I'm going to write a novel one day. They sit down and they do the work. So, and, and if what makes you do the work is committing to either a time span or a word count or a deadline, you know, do that. You've just got to do it. You can't afford to be too precious about it. You cannot at all wait for the muse to strike. I don't, I don't actually, I don't think I've seen the muse. The muse is a bit like the Easter bunny at my house, you know. <laughs> it is a job like any other job. I don't wake up in the morning and think, oh, I feel inspired to go out and assess a patient today, you know, for my psych work. I never feel inspired to go out and assess somebody with brain damage. But that's what I do, so I go out and do it. And writing is exactly the same. I say, okay, I'm going to write a 1,000 words today, and I sit down until they're done, or mostly done, and, yep. and I can get the kids to bed and come back and do them. So commit to the work. Um, what would be my third tip? Um, gosh, look for feedback, um, friend. Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's a great tip, actually. Um, be prepared to be clear-eyed about the industry and what you expect from it. Be prepared for, I don't want to bring everyone down again, be prepared for it to be a hard slog. Maybe yeah. that's 
maybe that's actually I think that's my best last tip uh, be persistent yeah as I said you know 40 rejections for after the fall before I sold it um, you know probably similar amounts for the two previous novels before that um, you know there's been great reviews along the way and people have loved my books but there's always nobody ever gets off scot-free there's always going to be someone who hates your books and if you don't believe me get onto Goodreads and and look up um, Pride and Prejudice and see how many people hate Pride and Prejudice with a passion and think Elizabeth Bennet must die because, you know, <laughs> she's so horrible or, or vapid or ineffectual. So I guess I'm just saying that you're never, not everybody's, you're never going to win everybody over um, yep. and you're never going to win every battle that you fight. You're never going to get every publishing contract you go for. You do have to, as well as committing to the work, I guess you have to commit to 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 the industry to to this is if this is what you want to do you have to put the hard yards in um some people it happens very easily and organically for but others do have to slave away for years and then and then once you slave away for years and you get your first novel published it's not over then you have to slave away writing the next one do it again yeah you have to keep doing it you just have to keep showing up so be persistent fantastic try try and keep faith yeah all right. Well, I think that's um, that's awesome advice. I think being persistent is one of the keys to getting there in the end. So I think that that's a that's an uplifting and inspirational last tip you've given us there. I think. Good. No. I look, can I just quickly say I wish I think authors are getting better about being about sharing this sort of stuff. But it's probably the media's fault rather than authors' fault. I think we hear too many fairy tale stories about about um, people like like Hannah Kent and. and all the best, of, you know, luck to Hannah Kent who wrote Burial Rights, which was a debut novel which got picked up through um, a, an unpublished manuscript prize and then, you know, sold into a gazillion countries around the world and has made a gazillion dollars. And fantastic, it's a great novel and good on her. But I think that new authors particularly go in thinking that that's how it always works. And that is well and truly the rare story. And I think we need more dialogue from mid-list, you know, mid-career authors like myself about what we actually do earn, which I always try to tell my students. And I say, ask me anything you like because I'm going to be honest with you. You know, I think people need to know what we do earn, how hard we do work, how difficult it can be when you, you know, how, how tough it can be when you get bad reviews or, you know, when something's not working. So I think authors need to be very honest about what they do too because a lot of people are very starry-eyed. They think it is all champagne and book tours. And, <laughs> and it, you know, it's not. There's tapeworms in there as well. There's tapeworms as well, people. That's all you need to remember. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kylie. I really appreciate it. And um, good luck with the champagne and book tours. I think that that, um, that will uh, be nice before you go back to the tapeworm for the next book. And, uh, <laughs> I, uh, and look, can I just quickly say that I really do – I'm very grateful for my career and I thoroughly enjoy it and I love writing even though it doesn't sound like it. So well, I just, it's not all doom and gloom. I yeah. think it's the kind of thing that you, as you said, like it's something that you feel compelled to do and I think yeah. that writing is in many ways, you know, like people, if you don't love it, you know, on some level, then you probably shouldn't be doing it really. Oh, absolutely. You don't agree? do it unless you have to do it, unless <laughs> there's a part of you that can't not do it. That, that would be, yes, my fourth big tip actually. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kylie. Pleasure, Al. That was a great interview, Al. And, of course, you know, Kylie Ladd is one of our presenters at the Australian Writers' Centre in Melbourne. And I love, you know, the fact that we can share some of their advice on the podcast too. Thanks for doing that interview. Yeah. It's so useful as well. That's what I love. You know, she's a very honest and very forthright author. And I think that's always a good thing. 
very forthright. Uh, so let's move on to our app pick for the week. And my app pick is um, associated with my love of, you know, typography really, because, you know, there are some people who love buying artwork that's beautiful landscapes or abstracts or that sort of thing. And I must admit, I'm always drawn to artwork that includes typography. So words or even just letters. Uh, I love looking at them. And, you know, I've bought cushions with typography on them and I buy prints with typography on them. So I am not an artist, but I attempt to channel my inner artist by um, using a couple of apps on my iPhone. One's called Typography and one is called WordSwag. And, you know, unlike some photo apps which are all about the filters or enhancing the colours or doing tilt shift or, you know, making your skin more beautiful, this is all about the words. So I find myself do, using them to pretty up quotes or to um, turn into beautiful typography, my mantra for the day. And um, it's just really cool. And, I, in, you know, of course, I Instagram them and Facebook them and that sort of thing. Of course you do. <laughs> so do you have an affirmation a day? Like you choose a quote for the day? No, no, I don't have it for the day. If I'm just feeling a particular thing that particular day, I might share it. But I don't uh, try to do something every day. The only thing – Add that to your th- – you know, once a day challenge. Well, you know, my, otherwise my life will become too full with all these things. I was going to say, time for all the once a day challenges <laughs> that you have. We don't have time for anything else. Exactly. So do you use typography or word swag? No, I, no, I don't. But I should. <laughs> I should because I do love a good quote and I'm often yes. – I, I tend to muck around on, on my computer more with Canva and and pick monkey and things. But um, but what I need to know is whether or not they those two apps have Comic Sans on them. <laughs> I must know. I would like to think not because they seem quite tasteful apps so far. <laughs> so do you also have the vehement dislike of um, Comic Sans that most of my designer friends have? And I'm looking at you, Kelly Exeter. <laughs> um, it's not my favourite font and I think <laughs> but I do know that many people hate it as evidenced by when uh, the Sydney Morning Herald featured Comic Sans in, on its front page not that long ago and it made worldwide <laughs> headlines. Crazy. <laughs> but let's move on to oh, our working writers tip. What is our question this week? Well, our question this week is one that comes up regularly uh, for me, for lots of um, writers that I know, and probably for you, Val. And the question is, um, how do I find a mentor? Mm. Now, it's um, something that I'm going to throw to you first, because I know that you are often asked this question. So you tell me, how do I find a mentor, Val? Well, I think it's important to make two distinctions. One is there are mentors that you pay for because you value their time and their expertise and you know that they're going to be, you know, great value to you as a mentor. So you can choose to pay for them. (laughs) And that's a matter of finding the right mentor, somebody with experience in the areas that you want to learn from. And um, And what would that cost, Val? Oh, look, that varies. I think you could get mentors from anything between, you know – one and well for writers between 100 and say 350 um you know and everything in between and sometimes if you know a mentor is charging 350 dollars an hour it's not doesn't necessarily mean they're three and a half times better than somebody who charges 100 dollars an hour it may just mean that they have a lot less available time so yeah. again it comes down to supply and demand um so anyway you there are some great mentors out there that you can you know pay for their time and how do i find them do 
I look for them through a writer's centre or what's yeah. the best way to actually track one down or do I approach them directly? Well, you can find them through the writer's centre, but you can still, but then you need, still need to approach them directly. They may be recommended by the writer's centre, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really a matter of, well, A, Google, B, ask around your network and, and ask for recommendations of people who already have mentors. So it's always a recommendation is a great way to go. But then there are a lot of people yeah. who ne- don't necessarily want to pay for mentors. Um, you know, they are hoping to have a coffee every month or whatever um, and get some mentoring advice that way. And there are some writers who are happy to do that. Uh, but the key thing is there is that if you don't want to pay for your mentor, you need to think of, well, what's in it for them? Now, yeah. if they want to do it out of the goodness of their heart, that's 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 great. And you need to find those particular ones. If not, what can you bring to the table that may be, you know, something useful to them or interesting to them? Or what are they, importantly, what are they looking for in a mentoree? And can you fit that bill? You know, because some people want to impart their knowledge, but they really only want to work with mentorees who are going to act on their, their, their advice that day and they yep. get very disillusioned and they get very demotivated as mentors if they're not listened to, if their mentorees don't act on their information. So you, it, it, it takes a little bit more research, particularly if you want a mentor that's going to do it for free, yep. but you need to think about what you are bringing to the table because it's, it's not just all about what they can give you. So no. how about you, Al? Well, I have to say, like, it's one of those things where I um, I actually do have a couple of mentorees that I work with um, and I I choose, you know, my time very – I don't have a lot of time and I think that that's what people need to understand, that there's there's only so many hours in the day and the time factor is, is so incredibly important. Um, now, I, I think that one of the most important things that you need to think about if you're going to approach someone to be your mentor is don't just – don't just email them out of the blue and mm. just like someone that you've they've ne- if, if you've never been in their network if you've ne- if they've never seen you on social media you've never engaged on their Facebook page if you are a name that's come from left field and they don't know who you are a request to to be to meet for coffee is just why why, why am I going <laughs> yes. I, that's all I can think of is. I, I have like five minutes to myself next time I go to Sydney. Why am I going to meet you for coffee when we've never, I've never spoken to you. You've never spoken to me. Via, not, you've never even tweeted me, you know. Yep. Like it's, um, so, you know, I, I have to say no under, that, under those circumstances, you know. Like you, you need to build some kind of relationship of, on some level or, yes. or be introduced by somebody or I don't know, something. But I have to say that I, yeah, I used to do a lot more informal mentoring than I do now. I just don't have the time to do it anymore. And I know that a lot of um, writers are the same. Mm. My suggestion would be to do a paid mentoring session with somebody mm. um, like Sue White, for example, from the Australian Writers Centre offers paid mentoring sessions. Yep. You will get more out of one hour of paid mentoring session then you will get out of 20 coffees as yep. far as I'm concerned. Yep. Like it's just you're, you're both there, you know why you're there, you get your questions organised, you line yourself up and off you go. And I think that, um, that that's, that's a, a good use of time. Mm, mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that, you know, because when you're paying for something, you're going to get really quality advice. And if you're meeting someone for coffee, you may well still get uh, quality advice, but, you know, it's not going to be sustainable in the long run. They're not going to meet you for coffee forever if you're not going to bring something to the table. No. 
Mm. I have said to one mentor who I was, you know, mentoring um, without charge uh, because he was, you know, uh, such a go-getter and I knew it was going to be a joy to mentor him. And I did say to him, if you don't actually act on this advice that I'm giving you today uh, within the next week or within the next five days, I'm invoicing you. <laughs> and I expect to be paid Did immediately. Did you cry now? <laughs> no. Did you put it that? I don't people cry. <laughs> I'd be scared to be mentored. <laughs> anyway, I didn't make him cry. And so this brings us to the end of our podcast for this week. Uh, what are you going to be up to until we next speak? Well, I am in the process of, so I've done all the copy edits on uh, book two of the, Mo- the Mapmaker Chronicles and it's gone back. Mm. And I am in the process of redrafting book three. That's my task for the week is to, to redraft that so that I can then read it to my number one reader, which mm. will be my oldest son, who is desperately gagging to hear what happens next. Um, so that's that's where I'm up to with that. And um, and of course, I'm, I'm getting ready for the launch of book one, which is happening in the next couple of weeks. Um, I know. So I'm madly writing blog posts for blog tours and preparing, oh, organising sort of, I'm talking at schools and all sorts of different things coming up. Exciting. Mm, very exciting. And you? Uh, well, today and tomorrow, I'm actually speaking at a conference for creative entrepreneurs. So people who are, you know, writers and artists and sculptors and um, hat makers um, on how to raise their profile in the media, uh, you know, and to, to, it's so that they can get more customers. And then later this week, I am having um, lunch with, Seth Godin, not just me and Seth, me and Seth and several hundred people, and um, the next day with Arianna Huffington. So it's a big week, yeah. I'm pretty excited to um, see what they have to say. So I'll be looking forward to the report for the next podcast. Yes. So until next time, where can we find you? You can find me at alisontate.com. And you can find me at valeriekoo.com. Of course, you can find the show notes to this podcast at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email us at podcast at writerscentre.com.au. And uh, we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.